Our Father, in a world so filled with turmoil and distress, it's good just to be still in your presence with your people on this Lord's Day. Thank you that in the storms of life, the one our choir sang of, the Lord Jesus, in a moment's time, he stilled those storms. Thank you that the disciples who are right in the center of your will found themselves in a storm. We know that somehow in your providence, you work everything together for our good, that your son might have preeminence in all things. Thank you that as the disciples were in that storm, your son was praying there on the mountain. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you see us this morning, that your word says you forever make intercession for us, that you are praying for us today, even as we gather in this place. It's our earnest desire as we open the revelation, the revelation that John tells us is about you, that you would give us a glimpse into who you are and what you're like, that we might love you more fully, more accurately, and follow you more passionately. All I want, all I cling to is Christ. That's our hope. Father, our nation is sick. So many who have turned away. You said that when a nation says no thank you, that you give them over first to sensuality, then to perversion, and then to all kinds of evil and violence. We are witnessing in our day the very things your word wrote of. But thank you that as your people we can offer those in despair a word of hope, true hope, certain hope, if they will come to Jesus. We know that our ability to do that is predicated on our spiritual growth and our openness to you. So we open our hearts to you today as we ask you to open your word to us. May the Spirit be the teacher. May he illumine what he wants us to see. You've given us these heavy truths for a reason. May we heed what you've said. May we want what you want. Help me now, Father. Come fill me and anoint me and use me, I pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. If you're joining us for the first time, we are working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this powerful book. The book opens with a promise. We are told in Revelation, chapter 1, that we are blessed. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. What an incredible promise. While in one sense, all of God's revelation is a blessing, God attaches a unique blessing to this book for those who will read here and follow its truth. So every chapter, every verse is important, even some of the very difficult sections that we are in right now. I want to begin by reading our passage, Revelation 6, as we continue our study of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come, I looked, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. 
And another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And I looked and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. But after the church is removed, a time in human history will unfold that is unprecedented, that will never, ever happen again and has never happened before. It is so gruesome, it is so horrible And we begin to see it unfold here in the sixth chapter. The response of the peoples of the earth will be, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, verse 16. It is so terrible, it is so frightening, that Jesus said of this time, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. That is an incredible prophecy When you consider all of the holocausts, all of the killing fields, all of the tornadoes, all of the hurricanes, all of the tsunamis, all of the earthquakes, all of the famines, all of the wars, all of the murders, Jesus said it doesn't even begin to compare with this time frame that is in front of the world. Daniel was told by the angel Gabriel of this time frame, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. It's a unique time in human history, an unprecedented time. And when you come to the sixth chapter of the Revelation through the 19th chapter, you see that time unfolded. Jesus said it will be so horrible that unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Now, for the benefit of those being here for the first time, And for the rest of us, because I recognize that repetition, as Jesus taught, as Peter illustrated, as Paul explicitly said, is the master teacher. And so as you go over and over and over a truth, it begins to get deep into your soul where you don't just hear it and forget it, but you hear it and you begin to live it. And that's my heart. My heart as we study through the Revelation is not for you to develop develop some prophecy chart but for you to become more like Jesus Christ, to love him more passionately. The theme of the book is he is coming again. He's coming in the clouds of glory. The outline of the book was given to us in Revelation 1.19. Jesus told John to write the things which you have seen. That's the past. And so in the first chapter, he gives us that scene of the glorified Christ in heaven. He tells them to write the things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3 of seven literal actual churches that are in existence when he writes the book in 95 AD, and then the things that will be after these things, metatata, in the future. And so beginning in chapter 4 all the way through the 22nd chapter, we are looking at futuristic things. 
And so we're talking about the things that will take place after these things. Now remember, the futuristic section begins in chapter 4 with an open door. 4.1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place a second time over so you can't miss it. After these things. The door is opened and the church is brought up. And we saw that the number 24, not by accident, is God's number of a representative group. And I illustrated that with you from other scripture. The 24 elders are representative of the whole church that has been caught up into heaven. And so the churches are never mentioned again. They're not seen again until the 19th chapter when Jesus comes back. Now, it's possible to miss the rapture of the church. One of these days, maybe sooner than most of us realize, suddenly the body of Christ will be gone off the planet, and it's going to create great discord and distress. You can miss the rapture. You cannot miss the second coming because the second coming is a distinctly different event. Every eye will see and witness the second coming. The rapture is when he comes and takes his bride to heaven. We meet him in the air. At the second coming, he literally actually comes to the earth. And so when John enters into heaven in the fourth chapter, Heaven is filled with praises and worship. They're giving God glory and dominion because he is worthy as the judge of the universe. But all judgment has been given to the Son, the Scripture says. And so when you come into the fifth chapter, you begin to see things are starting to change. Notice the opening verse in chapter 5. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. It's a seven-sealed book. And we understood from other scriptures that any first century writer and even external biblical sources, any first century writer or reader would understand that this was a very, very special document. And it's unsealed, just one seal at a time. Seal's broken, rolled down, truth is revealed, another seal rolled out, another seal, seven seals. It's not one scroll with seven seals across, but one exterior seal with six interior seals. You would put your most precious documents in this kind of a scroll where all the people who, in essence, were there when it was sealed had to be there when it was opened. In either case, it's the last will and testament that God gives for the planet. It's the title deed to the earth. And we're going to read how God is going to claim back what Adam lost. God intended for Adam to rule and reign, to have dominion over the creation. But what the first Adam lost, he lost the farm in essence, the second Adam will regain when he comes again. And so here's John, he's in heaven. And he begins to weep. He begins to cry. His heart is broken. And as you enter into the sixth chapter, it's like a shock to the senses. Because in the fourth and fifth chapter, there's praise, there's thanksgiving, you're in heavenly places, you're in scenes of joy. In the fourth and fifth chapter, but when you come to the sixth chapter, there's heartache, there's scenes of judgment. 
It's a place of horror that the church is witnessing. They're given front row seats as to what is going to take place during this time. Now, we've seen that these judgments come in series of sevens. There's the seal judgments, there's the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, STB, all right? Seal, trumpet, bowl. Say it with me. Seal, trumpets, bowls. Very simple to remember. But the structure is very important as we consider how they unfold. Now with the seal judgments, God allows it to happen, but most of the ruin that comes upon the world is created by man as God allows it. It's still an expression of the wrath of the Lamb. With the trumpet judgments, most of the heartache that comes on the world is created by Satan and all of his uh, minions who are following him, all of his fallen angels. But when we will come to the bold judgments, we will see the world rescued by God Almighty as it ushers in the second coming. Now, if you don't get the structure of the book, it will become confusing to you. And if you just casually read through the book of Revelation, you'll miss it. But if you sat down and you read through the book of Revelation four or five times, you would begin to see how it all fits together. Here's a picture of the seven-sealed scroll. The first four represent four horsemen. And so we are speaking today of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as these first four seals are popularly called. And again, there is a structure four and three, four seals representing four horsemen, followed by the fifth seal where scores of people are martyred for their faith. We'll see some cosmic changes in the sixth seal. And then there's a space of time. And with each of these seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, God will allow a space of time almost to let us to catch our breath and to help us to see other things that are actually taking place during this time. And in Revelation 7, we'll see these witnesses, 144,000 of them preaching the gospel across the planet. And then the seventh trumpet is opened. And when the seventh trumpet is opened, all of heaven is quiet. This place of praise turns into utter quietness. No one speaks for 30 minutes. We will see that unlike the seal judgments where you see a piece at a time, in the seven trumpets are seven bowls and they're all revealed and it is so awesome, so incredible what God is about to do. People are just quiet, dead silence. Here's a picture of the seven trumpet judgments. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Again, they are divided into four and three. We will see there are four war trumpets followed by three woe trumpets. After this second woe trumpet, the sixth trumpet, again, there's a space of time, chapters 10 through the middle of chapter 11. And then, and of course, during that time, we'll study the angel with his little book. We'll study two witnesses that God will use to preach the gospel as well. And then the seventh trumpet is blown, and in the seventh trumpet are seven bowls. Now, when the seventh trumpet is blown, it is announced in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you think, well, the book must be over, or it should end here. Well, obviously it hasn't. But he can make that statement because in the seventh trumpet, which contains the seven bowls, 
God is going to bring the culmination of events that will spur the second coming that we will witness in Revelation chapter 19. Now, there's an intensification of judgment as it unfolds. We will see in the seal judgments a reference to one-fourth of the earth being affected. When we come to the trumpet judgments, as I noted last time, 13 times over, God notes a third of the world is affected. But when we come to the bold judgments, the entire planet is shook from end to end. It's just like Jesus said, there's a growing intensity like a woman in labor. God is getting the earth's attention with the seal judgments, serving almost as a warning of God's wrath. The trumpet judgments intensify, reminding them that it is so real, you better do something. But the bold judgments will be the culmination of God's wrath. So here's the big picture all lined out for you. Again, you have seven seals. In the seventh seal are seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls bringing about the second coming. It starts with the rapture. There's a space of time. It's very short. We don't know how long. Because of what Jesus said, however, in the opening of the revelation, he said once it starts, it's very quick. Maybe it's a matter of hours or a few days. We don't know. But between the rapture, there will be a short amount of time that will pass. And then the Antichrist will come on the scene. And he will sign this firm covenant that we studied in Daniel 9 with Israel. And it will begin the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Divided into two halves. In the first half, Israel is protected. and the second half, Israel is persecuted. Now, this chapter, the sixth chapter that we're in today is popularly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse because the fourth seal, the first four of the seal judgments come with four riders and four living creatures whom we studied. Each of the four call out a different rider. And the imagery here is given of a horse who rides across the world. I told you that one of the reasons there are so many wacky interpretations for Revelation today is some ignore God's promises to the people of Israel, but some don't recognize that much of the symbolism, if it's not interpreted within Revelation, it's interpreted in other passages of the Old Testament. 300 of the 404 verses are referenced in the Old Testament. That's 75% of the book. And so if you were studying Zechariah chapter 1, which you might have in the margin already, you discover that there are horses that the Persian kings send out to review their kingdom, to prepare it for action. Well, now God is sending out horses across His world because all the world is His and He's preparing to judge it. Now, let me tighten the context a little bit further. In the immediate context, uh, we've already covered the first four verses, and in those four verses, we covered two riders. And remember, we are introduced in the fifth chapter to the Lion of Judah, to the Lamb of God. Jesus is both the Lamb, He's the Savior of the world, but He's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one to whom all judgment has been given. But this expression, the four horsemen, is become an idiom in our day of basically of any advent of war, any terrible event that may come, much like they use the term Armageddon, or they say, well, this is an event of biblical proportions. So we use these idioms repeatedly. Four horses, a white, 
a red. We'll come to the black today before we're done. And then we will come to the ashen or the pale horse. Four ghoulish, gross, gruesome, ghastly riders that are going to bring judgment upon the planet. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, come. And so now comes the white horse of deception. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. This is precisely what we discovered in Daniel 9. And if you weren't here for that series, at least go back and listen to the messages on Daniel 9. I have four. They are important because they are a schematic to the entire book of Revelation. But we learn that there's coming a man there. He is called the prince who is to come, who will make a firm covenant with the nation of Israel. It's a covenant that will last for seven years. He comes as a peacemaker. And so here's a man who comes with a bow, but he has no arrows, not by accident. It implies that he will try to control the world without bloodshed. And he will accomplish initially a solution to the world's problems. He will come like Jesus as an imposter. He comes antichrist. The word anti can mean against or in the place of. He comes in the place of Christ. He comes as a world Messiah. He comes as a prince of peace. And of course, he resembles Jesus because the devil is the great imitator. He has a bow, but he has no arrows. This is the devil's man. And we saw that even some commentators in our day think that this is Christ. If this is Christ, he's in really bad company with these other three riders. This is not Christ. And we saw that there's a clear distinction. I highlighted six differences between the fifth rider of the apocalypse in Revelation 19 and this particular rider. But this man will come with a peace plan. People in the world will bow to him. He will come on a white horse. And he comes on a white horse for obvious reasons. The color white is a symbol of peace. The man in the white hat we usually think is a good guy. And so he comes as a man of peace, but he also comes as a man of power. We read here in verse 2 that he went out conquering and to conquer. Do you see that in the text? The leaders of the nations of this world will bow at his bow, so to speak. Those who have denied the right of Jesus to rule, those who have denied Jesus' expression that he is the Savior of the world, those who have denied that he is the Son of God, they will grant allegiance to this Son from hell, to this Antichrist. He comes as a man of peace, he comes as a man of power, and he comes as a man of pretense. He's not whom he makes himself out to be. He's a very different kind of person. And so in the first command, the first horseman is ordered by one of the four living creatures, and he says, come, and we read in verse 3, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And so then the red horse of destruction is delivered. Look at verse 4, and another a red horse went out into him who sat on it. It was granted to take peace from the earth. And so the story soon turns ugly. What comes initially with peace upon the earth with the first rider is soon turned to war. That bow with no arrows is exchanged with this rider 
with a great sword. Now, for a short period of time, just as Paul delineates for us in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, the world will think that they have a new world order, and there will be a short time of peace. They'll be saying, everything is okay. We finally have the solution to the world's problems. And while they are saying peace and safety, Paul says, suddenly, it's in the front of the sentence for emphasis, suddenly, destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, I believe that knowingly or unknowingly, God is setting the stage for this new world order. There are many people across our world who want a one-world government. They want a new world order. But this peace and safety is going to be followed, according to verse 16, by the wrath of the Lamb. Look now at verse 4. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now, some of the adjectives are very important. We saw that this is a red horseman, and there are a couple of different words in Koine Greek for red, but the word that he chose, peros, is not by accident. The Spirit of God gave him that word to record this writer because it's the word that is used to describe the blood of war. It is a word of warning. It is a word of terror and of death. It's the adjective that's used to describe the devil himself later on in this book, who's called the red dragon. And we're told that he has given a great sword. John is trying to put it in his own verbiage. The sword that he uses is a Greek word that is used to describe death. It's used to describe the right of a government to kill people. But this is no ordinary sword. This is a great sword. Who knows? Perhaps a weapon of mass destruction. And the Greek language is very specific. Ektes That is, he took peace from out from the world. This is different from world wars in the past. This is a war that encompasses every nation on the planet. Men would slay one another. And again, he uses a very specific word. We witnessed it last Sunday night. There was a slaying of people in America. It is a term that describes someone who will butcher people. And notice verse 4 says, to him who sat, this rider, was granted to take peace from the earth. It was granted. He was given permission. He's on a leash. He is under the control of the wrath of God Almighty. Now the world, some will be converted during this time. But some will be hardened during this time. And one of the functions, there's really several functions, one of the chief functions of the tribulation period is to bring the Jewish world to faith in Yeshua. They are going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They will recognize it. We have a minority of Jews today who believe that. 200-some thousand in the United States, according to Jews for Jesus. You go to Israel today, and in virtually every small town, There's a congregation, sometimes just a dozen or two, of Messianic Jews who believe Jesus is Lord. But in this day, there'll be a widespread turning of the Jewish people to Jesus. They will recognize His Savior. A second function is to bring Gentiles to faith, those who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. 
But a third function will be to demonstrate the hard, evil heart of man who is resistant towards God. And so when we're done with these seals, we're going to see the people not saying, Jesus, save us. Many of the people will say in verse 16, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. Listen, things will change after the church is gone. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. When the church is removed, that light will turn into darkness. You are the salt of the earth. The church, even in its weak state today, still preserves righteousness. But when the church is gone, decay is going to set in. And the Holy Spirit's going to lift his restraining hand, as we're going to see in the revelation, off of this world. Jesus said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He uses the word nation. We get our word ethnicity from it. He's talking about race wars across the planet, kingdom against kingdom. He's talking about geopolitical boundaries, different nations of the world in that respect. Add to that, there will be no mothers, no fathers praying for their sons and daughters as they go off to war. There'll be no chaplains in the foxholes pleading with men to receive Yeshua, In fact, most of the people who are converted in that day, John will reveal in this book, are slaughtered almost as soon as they believe. This is a time of war, fought without God, without Christ, without any hope at all. It is a terrible, heinous time, and millions and millions of soldiers, John will reveal, will go from a time of tribulation wrath into a time of eternal wrath. Now, when the red horse comes, peace is taken from the world. And one of the battles that God highlights is a battle found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I mentioned it briefly last week, and I got all these questions, even on the Bible line. You know, tell me about the battle of Gog and Magog. You should write out in the margin next to verse 4, 38 and 39. Now, these first two horsemen, as this chart reveals, bring it up, they come again in the first half of the tribulation. The first six seals all happen in the first half of the tribulation. Remember, it's divided into two halves, both by Daniel the prophet and by uh, Jesus and by John the revelator. The first half is three and a half years, and in this time frame, the battle of Gog and Magog will take place. So let me take a moment and at least comment on this, because it is an important battle, and it's interesting that God highlights this one particular battle. It's a regional battle. It's a Middle Eastern battle, but if you can understand the logistics of it, you will see all that much more of how God is setting the stage for the return of his son from heaven. Because, of course, the normal question to ask is if the beast, the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, comes and makes this peace covenant with Israel, then what on earth has happened such that peace is taken from the earth? Seems rather short-lived. Or what takes place is a battle to start with in the Middle East. Now, he comes on a white horse, and I suppose as the great imitator, as the great man of peace, he'll be given a noble prize. But his his prize will not last. His peace will not endure. And most peace treaties in the world have not. After World War I, we had the League of Nations. 
But of course, that failed. After World War II, we developed the United Nations, and they have repeatedly, decade after decade, failed to keep peace. And even though the Antichrist has brokered peace with Israel that will last for a matter of months, those who hate Israel, who do not want the Jewish people to breathe God's air, will go against Israel here in the Middle East. This is often referred to as the Russian Islamic evasion or more carefully, biblically, to the battle of Gog and Magog. And again, it's an important chapter, chapters 38 and 39. Now, we're going to see, and I'll show you in a moment, there are three major battles that take place in this seven-year period. There's the battle of Gog and Magog that is associated with the Red Horse during the time when peace is removed from the world. And I'll show you why we know that in a moment. There's the battle (coughs) at the end of the seven years called the Battle of Armageddon that happens right before the second coming of Christ. And then there's an attempted battle at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. You say, why should I even care? Well, I'm going to show you why you care about it. But before we do that, let me just parenthetically make a statement here. Sometimes I get asked the question, Why does God use all these weird names like Gog and Magog? You know, uh, why can't he just name the country? Well, there's a number of reasons. Sometimes God makes prophecies of a geographical area ever before that geographical area assumes a given name. Now, God makes a prophecy about a place called Persia a hundred years before Persia is given the name Persia. Sometimes if God so chooses, he can name the place ever before it happens. He names a person Cyrus 150 years before he's born, and he tells us what this King Cyrus is going to do. But very often, God in his wisdom, knowing the way we repeatedly change, change names, he uses the names that he does for a reason. Take the place called Byzantium. Byzantium was the capital of the Roman Empire under the Emperor Constantine. He moved the capital from Rome to Byzantium, and when he does that, of course, he renames it after himself, and he calls it Constantinople. About 1,500 years later, the Muslims conquer that land, and they name it Istanbul, and that's what it's called today. Or take, for instance, in Russia, there was a city by the name of Petrograd. Uh, it was later called St. Petersburg, but when the communists came in under Lenin, they renamed it Leningrad, but it's gone back to the name St. Petersburg. So we are forever changing the names of people in places. But God in his wisdom will take the names of one's ancestors so that you cannot miss it. Uh, so if you're going to talk about a people biblically, you usually trace them back to the ancestry name. Here's a chart that might be helpful to you for a moment. Here's Noah. If you remember, Noah comes off the ark with six other people, including his wife, for a total of eight. He has three sons who are married. His three sons are named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You can see Shem has five sons. Ham has four sons. Japheth has seven sons. Now, I preach through the book of Genesis chapter by chapter, and most pastors skip chapter 10. They just say, well, this is the table of nations. I painfully, and you endured it, preach through Genesis 10. And I told you, you may think this is just filler, but there's no filler in Scripture. 
Every word is given by the breath of God. And I told you that if you choose to study the whole of Bible, which I am committed to teaching, that you will go back time and time and time again to Genesis 10, as I find myself doing. Why? Because you can trace every people on the planet today to Genesis chapter 10, to the table of nations. You can see one of Japheth's sons is a guy by the name of Magog. And of course, Josephus and other external documents tell us that Magog was the predecessor to the Greek people called the Scythians. Uh, people don't debate that today. That's a firm historical fact. And of course, the Scythians lived in a region of the world that was the belly of the former Soviet Union, all the stand countries, so to speak. Now, in the next diagram, again, you can see there are three major battles. There's the battle of Gog and Magog. That takes place after a time of peace. Then there's the battle of Armageddon that happens at the end of the seventh year, right before the second coming of Christ. And then there's the thousand-year reign of our Lord, where the devil is chained and bound in the abyss. But at the end of the thousand years, he is loosed. And we will see, because there's even a battle that is attempted, they don't fire the first bullet, Jesus just ends it, but they attempt to come against God's Messiah who's been ruling on the throne. We will see that that is one of many proofs for a pre-tribulational rapture, because as Matthew 13 indicates, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, he removes every vestige of every unbeliever he's removed. And so the only people who enter into the kingdom are believers. But the curse is lifted off the creation. They'll live for a long period of time. They have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren. They'll live long periods of time, like in the days of Noah. And some of their children will amass with the devil's supervision against God's Messiah. Now, understand this first battle comes after a time of peace, and it's again exactly what Daniel predicted. The man will come and he will make a covenant. It's what the rest of the New Testament says, while they're saying peace and safety suddenly, destruction will come. There'll be war across the planet, and the first war is the battle of Gog and Magog. Now, Israel, since the time of the Gentiles that began with Nebuchadnezzar, this is one of the reasons we studied the prophet Daniel, since the time of the Babylonian invasion, which began the time of the Gentiles, they've never had peace. They don't have peace today. They got to build up walls everywhere because people all around them and even within their own borders hate the Jewish people. Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're in that time frame. It began with Nebuchadnezzar and it will go all the way until the second coming of Christ. Now, by contrast, the battle of Armageddon does not encompass just a region, a section of Israel, the northern part. It encompasses the whole of Israel. So those are two distinct battles. Now, you can read Ezekiel the prophet, and if you haven't read him before, go home and at least read chapters 38 and 39. It's an incredible war, and God wins. All these people come against Israel, but God supernaturally 
pulls off the battle where they win. And we're going to study in a moment six allies who come against Israel. That's different from Armageddon, where all the nations of the world come against Israel. So to put it again in a visual for you, you can see that this battle of Gog and Magog happens after the peace covenant is broken in the first half of the tribulation period. Now, you might be thinking, why should I even care about the battle of Gog and Magog, and why are you taking time to cover it? Two reasons. Number one, because every administration since Harry Truman has attempted to make their mark by establishing peace within the nation of Israel. You think that's an accident? Do you think Trump, as soon as he gets in office, he, like all the presidents before him, wants to make peace with Israel? I mean, do you know of any other nation on the face of the earth that some American president and the United Nations will gather to discuss peace in the Middle East? It's not by accident. It's because the hand of a sovereign God who used the Hebrew people to bring in the first coming, he is going to use the Hebrew people to bring in the second coming. And so God is very, very clear. This is an an important event, but there's a second reason you should be interested, and it's for the simple reason the nations that are named here that are involved. Who are these six nations? Here's the map again. Bring it up, if you will. These nations, again, you can learn who they are by their ancestral names. And while these places today do not carry these same titles, you can isolate based on the table of nations, the Septuagint, and other outside literature, the exact geographical regions that we are speaking of. Up here in the north is a place called Rosh. It's Russia. No one debates that, that Rosh is Russia. Not because it sounds like Russia. It doesn't work that way. You could take other names, and some have sloppily done that. Well, this must be this city in the so It just happens to be that the Hebrew word Rosh sounds like Russia. In either case, that's not the basis of our identification. There's a place here on the map, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Togarma. If you go to Turkey today, you're going to discover that there are some ethnic groups, namely these four, that make up the country we call Turkey. Turkey, like Russia, is going to come against Israel in this battle of Gog and Magog. Here's a recent demonstration in Turkey burning the Israeli flag. Uh, the United Nations in their report indicates that 86% of the Turkish people say they hate Israel while only 2% say they are in favor of Israel. And it's not by accident that Turkey is closely aligned today with Russia. Here's another country. It's called Persia. Persia became the modern nation of Iran in 1935, and its name was changed to the Islamic Republic of Iran, Iran in 1979. And here is one of the weekly rallies. This happened just a few weeks ago. Maybe you don't follow the rallies. I tend to. I like to know what's going on in Iran. And here they are calling America the great Satan along with Israel. They want Israel destroyed. They write on their bombs in Hebrew 
the destruction of Israel. They are not Israel's friend, and they are certainly not the friend of the United States. Magog is in Central Asia. They represent an area geographically that comprises 100 million people. Uh, they, again, represent the Stans, Kakistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan. In fact, the unifying thread in these nations is the Quran. These are Muslim nations. Here's Kush. You see them on the map. Kush is modern-day Sudan. Here's a photo of Sudan. In Sudan, uh, here's a Iranian ship at its port. The country of Sudan Sudan repeatedly allows the Iranians to come and put their battleships there. Uh, it's a very uh, Islamic place today, and they too hate Israel. It was this country, Sudan, that for five years housed uh, Osama bin Laden and gave him protection, and they were a hardline uh, nation against Israel. Again, back to our map, you will see put. Put is modern-day Libya. Libya, of course, is where Gaddafi came from. And when he was alive, he fed the Libyan people a doctrine that they should despise and hate Israel. And, of course, Libya believes that through a united uh, Muslim uh, federation of nations that they will be successful in going against Israel. Now, of course, the question that often comes up on the Bible line from time to time is, well, where's America in all of this? Why aren't they coming to the aid of Israel? Why aren't they involved in this great war of Gog and Magog? Well, we're not told, but I think there are many possibilities as to why America is not engaged in this war. Number one, after the rapture of the church, all the evangelical born-again Christians will be gone. Who do you think got Trump into office among other groups? It was the evangelical Christian. And the only reason evangelicals voted for him for the most part was one for Supreme Court picks and number two, because he said he was pro-Israel. Now that remains to be seen just how pro-Israel he is. But when all the evangelical Christians are gone, who is going to push the government to be in favor of Israel? And then, of course, there's something that has happened, and I will document it for you in some subsequent weeks. There's a new wind that is happening in evangelical camps. I'm not talking about just those in Reformed theology who say the church is the new Israel, but in traditional evangelical camps that was in support of Israel. And so there's a new movement. They have an annual conference every year in Bethlehem, and it's a movement of Christians, so-called evangelical Christians, to go against Israel. And I will share with you some of the colleges like Wheaton College who support this conference and some of the evangelical seminaries that are now beginning to go against Israel. The wind is changing. Now, I don't know why America is not mentioned. Again, maybe because there's no evangelicals. Maybe because they have so many problems of their own in this day. Again, the restraining influence of the Spirit is gone. There'll be race wars. There'll be violence like the days of Noah across America. It might be that our military has all they can do just to maintain peace here. We do not know why America does not rush to defend Israel at this time. And we do know at the end of the seven years, America and all the nations will go specifically against Israel. Now, remember, 
Ezekiel the prophet lives 600 years before Jesus ever steps out of heaven in human flesh. If you've read the prophet, the first 32 chapters describe the judgment that they are experiencing in his day. He is an exilic prophet. The Jewish people are away under judgment in Babylon, and he's describing what they are experiencing and why they are experiencing. But he gives them a sense of hope. He looks out into the latter days to the end of time. And so beginning in Ezekiel 33 through chapter 48, he describes, one, the physical regathering of Israel. Remember, we studied it last time, at least I briefly mentioned it, that when the Romans finally dealt with all the Jews, they made it illegal for a Hebrew person to set foot in the country they renamed Palestine after one of their enemies. And so for nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people were not there. But it was God's land that he gave to the Jewish people. In either case, in the late 19th century, in the 1890s, there was a movement of Orthodox Jews who said, we need to go back to our land. And in 1890, there's 25,000 Jews in Israel. Under the rule of Hitler, where they are welcomed nowhere in the world, many of the Jews flee to Israel. And in 1948, surrounded by 100 million Arabs, there are 600,000 Jews. The prophet Isaiah said the nation would be reborn. They would become a nation in one day. And on May the 14th, 1948, God fulfilled that prophecy, and he keeps bringing the Hebrew people back. There are 6.5 million people there today, and it's all in fulfillment of what Ezekiel writes, the regathering. But he also speaks, once they are physically regathered, they're also going to be spiritually renewed. And the promise of the new covenant that we experience today as born-again Christians will come to the people of Israel. Not to mention the population keeps growing. They're not like us. They have more children than we do as Americans. 174,000 new babies are born every year by the Hebrew people. God gathers them physically. He rejuvenates them spiritually. And this prophecy is amazing because 600 years... Before it is written, there is no formal alliance with any of these countries. Yet at the end of time, and we're already witnessing the alliances of these nations today, God is going to bring them into the Middle East. All right, that brings us to the third rider. You say, I thought you'd never get there. That's the introduction. Hmm. You say, we're going to be here all afternoon. Well, let's see how committed you are, right? All right, so we come now to the black horse of destruction, of destitution, the black horse of destitution. And it's marked by three things. First, it's a time marked by shortages. We read in verse 5, when he broke the third seal... I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The third seal is broken and another rider makes his appearance. And this slide indicates we're still again in the first three and a half years. A black horse, the color black, both historically and biblically, is a color that is associated with mourning and with famine. 
Just as the white horse symbolizes peace, just as the red horse symbolizes blood and war, even so the black horse symbolizes mourning and the hunger that's associated with that mourning. How do I know that? Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. I can give you biblical examples. You might want to jot down a few. Jeremiah chapter 14. There the prophet said, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They, meaning the gates, sit on the ground in mourning. Literally, the Hebrew roots, they, the gates, are black for the land. They're black for the land. That's a little odd rendering of the Hebrew, and we don't understand that idiom, but the people did in Jeremiah's day, so we tend to interpret it. Though the King James just literally translates it, doesn't uh, it, it, do, it literally interprets it, doesn't translate the idiom for you. And so the King James says that the gates are black onto the ground. It reads just like the Hebrew. You say, well, I'm not sure what that means. And so usually the goal of a translator is, hey, put it into the vernacular of the language in the century in which people are using. There are some idioms that we don't use today. We used to use the idiom, sufficient is the evil unto the day thereof. We don't use that. What does that mean? I don't know. Uh, today we'd say every day has enough trouble of its own. All right? So uh, in essence, to interpret or to paraphrase the idiom, Jeremiah is saying the people, they appear in public as dejected. They mourn, uh, they, they mourn, they put on black. It's a time of national distress. Then he says, verse three, their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns. That's where you stored the water, like a big well, and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated and they cover their heads because the ground is cracked. For there has been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame and they covered their heads. And so again, black that's used here in the Hebrew Bible and in the King James, it's a symbol of mourning. Mourning over what? Mourning over the famine. There's no water to drink. There's no food to eat. Here's another example. Same prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. You know, Jeremiah, he's a crying prophet. He laments. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. And so in describing this awful day of thirst and lack of bread, he said, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. I gave it to you right out of the King James. It's a beautiful picture. Again, we don't use that idiom, but again, it is emphasizing the mourning associated with famine. Here's another example, Joel chapter 2, verse 6. In describing starvation and drought, the prophet writes, before them... The people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. That's how the NAS puts it. The King James reads more literally to the Hebrew, but an idiom we don't understand today. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. Now, normally, like in the book of Solomon, black is beautiful. But here, it's used as a symbol of heartache, of mourning that comes from famine. Now, even if you didn't read Hebrew, you might put two and two together and say, well, the man who comes on the black horse doesn't bring abundance, he brings famine. And that's obvious here from Revelation 6 and verse 5. Look at your text. When he broke... 
the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come, I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Very clearly, not by accident, a black horse who follows a red horse because famine invariably follows a time of war. And by the way, as we will see next time, this is the precise order that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse. I'm developing a chart. I didn't have it ready yet today. I give it to you next time. But I will show you how the Olivet Discourse found in Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel in Mark's Gospel perfectly parallels what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 6. Jesus speaks of a time of famine, then he speaks of, or he speaks of a time of war, and then he speaks of a time that's followed by famine. Millions will die. The world will be encompassed with war. Not so many will be out farming the fields as they will be in the battlefields. And every priority will be given to defending your nation. And of course, with famine comes disease and despair and death. And apparently, the famines will be so severe that food will need to be rationed. And so he speaks here of a pair of scales in the hand. Now, we know nothing about hunger in our day, especially in America. We can go to the grocery store and get whatever we want. Now, certainly my parents at the dinner table when we were young would tell us about what it was like growing up in the Second World War and how they would have uh, coupons where um, they were given so much coffee or so much sugar or so much gasoline. But that wasn't total deprivation. That was just an inconvenience. The shortages of World War II don't even begin to pale to the trouble that's going to come on the planet in this day. Even in America today, if you're not wealthy... Most of us have food in our cupboards, and most of us very rarely if ever go hungry, but that's all going to change after the rapture of the church. This is a time marked by shortages. Secondly, this is a time marked by starvation, a time marked by starvation. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The Bible says here there's riders carrying some old-fashioned scales in his hand. And please note precisely what the rider is saying. His judgments are revealed, and we're told in verse 6, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart, some of your translations say a measure, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, the Greek word for measure or a quart represents just enough wheat to be able to make a loaf of bread. And the loaf in the first century was one of these loaves, not one of these like we make, but one of these, just these small little loaves. And a denarius represented what the average person in the first century made after working all day long. And so uh, he is telling us here that a denarius, a man's wages for a whole day will only be able to buy a loaf of wheat bread. Now, I know that the coming black horse of famine is something, again, that we have difficulty in our culture understanding. Most Americans, their idea of sacrifice or skipping something is skipping a bowl of ice cream before they go to bed, right? I mean, we're not, we're not talking about anything too heavy. I mean, I remember when I was a child at the dinner table, 
you know, you didn't like something on your plate. I don't know. I never did like the cauliflower and I didn't like the Brussels sprouts, but I, I like most of the other things. But my parents would say, you need to eat that. You know, there's children in Africa who are starving. And, and I said, look, if the children in Africa were here, they wouldn't eat it either. You know, <laughs> didn't always go over too big, but, but, but we don't know that much about starvation, do we? We, we really don't, but the world will know it. I mean, a person's wage will be able to buy enough food for one person. Now, if you're not working or unable to work, you won't have any food for yourself. And remember, we're talking about a man's wage for one person. Now, the average family size in the Middle East is 7.7 people. The average family size in Africa is 5.3 people. The average family size in America is 2.5 people. And so even here, we will know the pain and suffering. A quart of wheat for a denarius, and then he says, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, wheat was the chosen bread. Barley was basically animal food. Unless you were really poor, it's not by accident that the scripture notes that that boy who brought his five loaves brought five barley loaves. That said a lot about his family. He was very, very poor. In either case... You will have a choice. To put it in modern terminology, your dad, you're at the dinner table. Do you have one loaf that is divided amongst your whole family? Or do you buy three loaves of barley animal food to go amongst your whole family? Or in modern terms, do we buy a box of saltines, say, to split amongst the whole family to feed everyone? Now, this is all going to happen in the first half of the tribulation period, and people are going to have difficult choices to make. And when people get hungry, they will do all kinds of things. When Israel was garrisoned from 67 to 70 AD, surrounded by the Roman army, Titus Vespucian's army, it got so bad the hunger that some of the people began to kill their children and eat them. And if you want to see what it's like to be hunger, we, we haven't had much public press on it in the last week because other events going on. Just look at what's going on in Venezuela. People are killing each other for food because the shelves are empty. That is going to happen. It's going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible time. Time marks by shortages and time marked, as Jesus will show us, by starvation. But third, a time marked by separation. By separation. Look, if you will, now at verse 6. I heard something like, A voice in the center of the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and here it is, here's the separation. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, it's an interesting little phrase here at the end of verse 6. The oil and the wine are not harmed. Explicit instructions given by God Almighty that the, there would be no damage to the oil and the wine. Now, wheat and barley, they represent necessities. In the first century, oil and wine represented luxuries. It was often found in any rich home. However, the staples of life will be what the majority of the people on the planet will know, but only the wealthy will know the oil and the wine. And I find that very, very interesting because Jesus gives the same disparity as we'll see in the Olivet Discourse. And I think in some respects, this will be a judgment upon the earth 
And I'll explain why in a moment. But think about it. Jesus spoke of a time of famine in the Olivet Discourse. But Jesus also spoke about a time of plenty. He said, for instance, in later on in that chapter, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. So two unequal conditions existing at the same time. And so John is giving a prophecy here that there will be great need, but there will be some who have plenty. And I say that's a judgment of God because the rich godly people of our day will all be gone. And the only people left will be the rich, wicked people. And what do you suppose will happen to some of these rich, wicked people? I'll tell you what, the majority will go after them. They will do everything in their power to get what they have. And I think, by the way, some of these early judgments in the seals are not by accident because they are setting the stage for the one world government not yet established with the one world economy not yet established. There's a one world order that has already begun to unfold, but the one world economy where you cannot buy or sell anything hasn't yet happened. But think about it. If you're hungry and you want to survive and you want food for your family and you don't love the living God, and because as Paul says, their God is their belly... You'll take the mark of the 666 in order to feed yourself and your family. So what does this prophecy concerning the rider on the black horse tell us? Well, it tells us one will be a time of limited productivity, which you can easily understand with war across the planet, but it will also be a time of great economic deprivation. And so this is not the war horse, this is the famine horse, and the two are clearly connected because as night follows day, famine typically follows war, and many will succumb to the allurement of the Antichrist to feed their belly. Now wonder, Jesus said of this time, woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, little babies will nurse it dry breasts, and there'll be hunger across the planet. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me make some suggestions as I close. Number one, these truths should make me more passionate in my witness. These truths should make me more passionate in my witness for Christ. I mean, if this biblical truth cannot grip your heart, I don't know what will. I mean, if you see people today as lost and you realize that the rapture could take place and they could enter into this hard time in human history, would you not care about their soul and their state? In recognizing that the tribulation wrath, as we will see from Revelation chapter 20 and other parallel texts, doesn't even begin to compare with the eternal wrath of God that will follow. But most Christians today are tight-lipped, and we think the solution to America's problem is in the White House. It's not in the White House, it's in the church house. And it's with a mighty army of Christians who will vocalize the gospel. But we're living in the age of a lukewarm church where most Christians today don't even attempt to share their faith. This is a new week with new opportunities We should ask God for those opportunities and for open doors. Secondly, these truths should make me evaluate how I'm living my Christian life. 
I mean, if you really believe that Jesus could come back today as the Bible teaches and the tribulation period could begin, this unprecedented time in human history, then how should you then live? That's the focus of prophecy. With virtually every prophecy in the New Testament, there's an accompanying command as to how you should live. God didn't give you this prophecy to give you some prophecy chart. He didn't give you these truths to make you a smarter sinner. He gave us these truths to make us more like Jesus Christ. And all the way through this book runs the underlying truth that Jesus is Lord, that he is coming again to rule and to reign in righteousness. And that hope, that guarantee should reflect our lifestyle today. And as John says, everyone who sets his focus on on this purifies himself as he is pure. Third, These truths should make me flee to Jesus Christ if I've never been saved. As you study the Bible, you discover there are four principal reasons why people do not come to Christ. Some hate God, they hate Christ, they hate the Bible. I doubt there's any like that here today or listening to me unless you just stumbled on the internet channel or on this TV broadcast or someone drug you here today and you didn't really want to be here. But some hate the light, so they do not come to the light, lest their evil be exposed. Some do not give their lives to Christ because they hate God. Some do not give their lives to Christ because they think they're too good to be saved. They think this message that I preach is for the prostitute, the drunkard, the drug addict, the pimp, the murderer, but it's not for them. They, after all, are a good, upstanding person. But your righteousness like mine falls short of the glory of God. Some people, a third group, never get saved because they think they are too bad to be saved. They think they have done such heinous, wicked things that God could never forgive them. God can save anyone. Whosoever will may come. It is sheer unbelief over what God has plainly stated that would lead someone to that conclusion. And the fourth reason people don't get saved in the Bible is because they procrastinate. Oh, they want to be saved. They intend to give their life to Jesus, but the devil has tricked them. You've got some life to live. You've got some oats to sow. You've got some sin to enjoy. And they've been deceived that God is ripping them off. That's what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. God's holding out on you. So they procrastinate. And millions and millions of people who intend to get saved, who intend to confess Jesus, who intend to be baptized, who intend to join the church, they procrastinate and they procrastinate and they procrastinate. And one of these days, it will be too late and they will be lost forever. You say, how can God possibly Wipe my dirty, filthy record clean. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment we deserve, the Bible says, fell on him. And if you will come to the Lamb, he will forgive you. But if you will ignore him, you will meet him as the lion of the tribe of Judah in all of his fiery wrath. Holy Father, thank you for your word today, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path for those who have eyes to see and wills to respond. 
I pray today, Father, for someone who is here, who, who is uncertain where their destiny will be. Help them to realize that you have paid not for some or most, but all of their sin with your own precious blood that you gave of yourself in Christ that we might be forgiven. You proved the sufficiency of his payment when you raised him from the dead, declaring to all men everywhere that he is Lord. So help someone to believe the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. Help someone, Father, to believe the gospel which you call is the power of God for salvation. Would you do that? Would you say, wherever you may be, Lord Jesus, save me. And Holy Father, may our lips not be sealed. May we be obedient that as we go, we seek to make converts, disciples of all peoples. Help us in this new week to ask you for open doors of opportunity, for circumstances to so be crafted by the Spirit of God that we could reach out to some dear lost soul in some way. Father, when he comes back, we do not want to shrink in shame, but we want to be in the dead center of your will, glorifying the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Lord Jesus, in the Spirit and by your holy name, we come and we thank you. Amen.